never, ever marks this spot. I am altering the deep. Pray I don't alter it any further. Most of the intelligence community doesn't believe he exists. The ones that do call him the Winter Soldier. I'm Batman. Dracarys. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Top 5 Report, the podcast that isn't quite sure what momraths are, but we can confirm they are outgrabe. Uh, my name is <laughs> my name is Drew. I'll be your host for the evening. Along with me, as always, is my brother Peter. Here, how's it going? <laughs> it's going, man. So I'm walking into Target, and um, you know how we're all supposed to be wearing face masks now. Um, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> so I'm walking into Target. I got my face mask on, and I see a couple people that are not wearing face masks, and they get turned away at the door, or yeah. at least an employee told them to. And it made me realize that. In criminals would wear face masks when they rob places, but now it's role reversal, and the criminals won't be wearing face masks. <laughs> Absolutely, I've, I've thought about this too. Like just walking around in a mask is now considered normal. <laughs> well, ago. well, not only that, not only that, but there was a some Pavarazzi snapped a picture of Joe Jonas and uh, Sophie Turner walking with their masks. And I thought to myself, this is like a celebrity dream to get to wear a mask everywhere they go. <laughs> Absolutely, um, yeah. It's like Comic-Con every day. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. I mean, unfortunately, they still got picked up by the paparazzi, but, you know, what can you do? Right. Um, so, anyway, um, what are we uh, What are we watching? What are we oh, reading? Man. So, so, it's only been a couple days since we recorded the last podcast. So yeah, I know. Saturday morning, so I actually haven't really watched much. Um, I finished watching that show Safe that I was talking about last week, which is uh, the uh, Michael C. Clarke Netflix uh, mystery show. Uh, It's a British mystery, um, and that was pretty good. It was pretty solid. Like, it's one of those shows that's kind of a short watch. It's uh, eight episodes, so you can kind of binge it over a weekend. Really solid watch. I was really satisfied. Other than that, I don't know that I have too much to say about it. Cause I wouldn't say it like broke new ground or anything. It's just kind of like, you know, a really satisfying little mystery show you can watch there. So, sure. Um, otherwise, I haven't really watched a lot. Have you? Well, me either. Um, yeah. <laughs> so because we recorded on a weird day, not that I, you know, um, didn't want to have time to watch stuff, but, you know, you have Mother's Day roll in and that kind of thing. So, um which Mother's Day was, you know, good. It was, you know, I got to see mom and that kind of stuff. So it was a, it was an okay day. Crappy weather, but it was an okay day. Um, yeah. But I did watch the final f- episodes of The Clone Wars, um, which uh, were phenomenal in a way that's almost hard to describe unless you watch them yourself. Um, so... I don't want to say it's technically spoiler territory because I'm not going to talk about the I'm not going to talk about what happened in the episodes, but um, these are the this is the series finale of the Clone Wars, and one of the things that was always theorized leading up to these episodes was that they were going to they were going to discuss what happened on Mandalore, um, 
because in the Mandalorian they talk about the fall of Mandalore briefly, and in the Rebel in the show Rebels they talk about uh, the siege of Mandalore, and you hear these you've you've heard rumors about the siege of Mandalore for years. So we always knew going into these episodes that we were going to finally get to see the Siege of Mandalore. And they talked about that back at Star Wars Celebration. Um, with these episodes, well, and it was, also, it was also kind of a rumor that we were going to see these episodes kind of overlap with Revenge of the Sith a little bit. Um, and, you didn't, and I didn't really fully understand how much, how well interlaced it was going to be with Revenge of the oh, Sith. Cool. Um, and that's where, uh, that's where, like, I, it's kind of spoilery for me to talk about, because I'm not going to talk about the episodes, but what I will say is, uh, the first of the four episodes starts, and you're like, oh my goodness, episode three technically starts at this moment in the show. Like, things are happening, and then something happens, and you're just like, that's the beginning of episode three. You're not watching it. You just know that it's about to happen and characters need to head off in certain directions to be in their places for that film. Um, and then you hear about things through dialogue and transmissions and all that stuff through the course of the episodes as the events of episode three take place. And at, at the first set, your brain is going, or at least mine was going, holy cow, this is amazing. And then my brain went, Oh my goodness, there's, and when I say Star Wars history, this is like historical in terms of canon, in terms of storyline. Order 66 is about to happen. And how is that going to impact what I'm watching right now? And um, it was absolutely incredible because I went from this sense of this is really cool and exciting to I started to get uneasy in my stomach and I felt really nervous for characters. I'm like, how is this going to play out? What are we going to do? Like, it was, it's really, really gripping and it's probably some of the greatest um, Star Wars storytelling there has been ever. Um, piggybacking off of everything George did, it's just astounding. Um, that's, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. I remember um, when Revenge of the Sith came out and you saw that whole like order 66 sequence was like, it was shocking and it was tragic, but there's some of those Jedis that you saw um, pass away that you never really formed like a relationship with through the prequel movies. So I imagine in the, like the clone wars addressing that, like I, I would imagine it hits you like so much harder, but it's kind of cool that um, as far as that, like time period in the, uh, you know, main star Wars saga films, they already know everything that's there. It's not like uh, it's not like the Marvel movies and Ag Agents of Shield where they don't like Agents of Shield doesn't necessarily know what's coming next, so they might be limited in how much they can interact in, with the movies. Like this is something where they know everything that's happened, so they can kind of it's kind of like just an open court for them to kind of go in and you know make all sorts of interesting choices. So that right. sounds really awesome. Right, and it's just. Um, it, I was blown away what I was watching and yeah. it makes me almost want a, um, it almost makes me want not only another live at another animated movie, but, um, another animated show as well. Like, I think they, I really think they could handle like, Hey, we have these time gaps. Like how about an animated show that covers the time gap between, um, a new hope and empire or the time gap from, 
And, you know, because that's like a five-year time gap. So what happened to Luke during that time, five years, that's that's him, like, learning his abilities leading up to Empire Strikes Back. And that's a really cool time period of the Rebellion War. Um, I'm always, I've always been fuzzy about the timeline, but the time gap between Empire and Return of the Jedi. But, you know, um, either way, this these episodes were so cool and how they played out, how they linked with each other into the film itself. Um, I couldn't stop watching it. And they did a really cool thing where they put the original Lucasfilm green logo up instead of the normal Clone Wars stuff. Um, So that you would, instead of the normal Clone Wars, like quote that they would put, uh, you would see the green Lucasfilm logo. It would say part, it would, it would show the Clone Wars logo would pull back like a crawl and then, but it would be in red and then it would say like part one and then you'd have a title and part two and have a title. So it wouldn't be the normal Clone Wars and they didn't have, um, Tom Kane's, uh, voice, uh, doing the, you know, the narrator thing that he always does at the beginning. It was just a really different way of doing Clone Wars and it was just, it's so good. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I watched. <laughs> um, nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's what we got for watching. That's real. That that went quick. We usually don't. <laughs> yeah. We're usually. Like, in... Well, I mean, like I said, we just recorded. It seems like a couple days ago. Like <laughs> I, I know. know it's really like four days ago, but still. I know, <laughs> and we had a lot of news on that show, and tonight we don't have yeah. much news. So I, I did just see that. Um, like right before the show, I saw that uh, Riverdale season four just got added on Netflix. So I think I'm going to be watching that next. So <laughs> oh, cool. That's something to look forward to. Yeah, season four. Um. In my opinion, is a weird season because it's not what you expect from the show, but they are definitely did just enough different things to make you go, okay. It doesn't feel because you know how the other the other seasons all felt very um, intertwined with themselves. Like it felt like even though you had like a down episode, it still like moved the overarching story a little farther. This feels very... Some episodes feel like they're one-shot episodes, but in the grand scheme of things, they're not. Um, and that's something that you see play out as the epi- as the season gets bigger and bigger. Um, so, yeah. Um, because, you know, uh, how do I... Jughead put it very... Uh, he put it very... He, he worded it really well when he was referring to... Um, it was a who... Instead of a who done it mystery... It was a why done it, not a who done it or a how done it. It was a why done it mystery, and that's primarily how they focused this season, which was kind of cool. So it made it a completely different style of writing. So okay, nice. I feel like we've been talking a lot about why done it's on the show lately, <laughs> like ever since Knives Out came out, and uh, I don't know. I feel like there's been a couple other movies or shows we've talked about that has that why done it sort of uh, sure. aspect to it. It's a sign of the twenty or I don't know the 2020s or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe it is. Um, well, let's hop over to news then. Um, all right. So first news. I thought this was kind of cool. Um, uh, the Russo brothers pizza film school. Um, Avengers Endgame director Joe and Anthony Russo will be hosting a free film school on their Instagram channel called the Pizza Film School. Um, I'm not entirely sure what all that entails, but I would honestly just want to sit and listen to them talk about how they make movies for a little bit. Um, so yeah, yeah I don't, I don't, I don't have much, to, I don't have much to say on it other than that. It was like, oh, I just thought yeah. that was kind of interesting in a world where we just want entertainment content. 
Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, and speaking of that, which is a cool segue, um, since we want entertainment content, content, we have um, Avatar sequels coming. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> and this caught my attention because we've been talking recently about movies costing a ton of money. And are they going to see the box office return because of how COVID's going to keep keep theaters shut down for like a certain amount of time? Are people going to want to go to the theaters? So the Avatar sequels are going to cost one billion dollars. Um, <laughs> together or together, the four Avatar sequels were reportedly cost okay. around one billion dollars to produce, averaging out to around two hundred and fifty million dollars per movie. Um, that's nuts. Um, that's, that's pretty standard, I think, in comparison to, like, Endgame, because I think Endgame was, like, much higher. I think Endgame was in the 300 millions. But, um, that's still a lot. So, are we going to get box office return on the Avatar sequels? And I don't, I don't know if I think, I don't know if Avatar is worth four sequels, but we'll see what they have planned (laughs) for us. Yeah. Um. It's one of those things, I wonder if, I wonder if these sequels are going to end up being good. Like, (laughs) Because I feel like so many people may say it, and like I have even in the past, like, oh, it's Avatar, the sequels that no one's asking for at all, you know? I know. But yeah. I'm just, it'd be kind of crazy if they end up coming out and they just blow everybody away. And like, I, we all know that it's going to look good, but what if the movie's just actually like spectacular and the story's awesome and just like, I mean, I'm expecting it to be decent, but it'd just be kind of cool if it like blew everybody away and then everybody's like, Hell yeah, I can't wait for Avatar 3. So. Right. <laughs> I don't um, know. Well, it's interesting because the, the article also re- references the Amazon Lord of the Rings series. That um, That's going to be a television mm-hmm. series that the first season is costing $1 billion. Um, I did hear that and a while I, back. And they, this article is very enthusiastic where it says they'll be able to resume filming within the next few months. We don't know when they're going to be allowed to resume filming. So... I just thought it was interesting that, you know, someone was going to try and make a bold statement about that, so. I mean, yeah, that's true. Both um, both franchises, you could imagine them using a lot of green screen. Maybe less so for the Lord of the Rings one, but I could see them filming, like, Avatar scenes with just one act- actor in, like, a green screen room and really practicing that, like, social distancing, uh, I guess, tactics while they film it, so. <laughs> right. Um... All right, I got two pieces of uh, CW news for you, which I thought was really interesting. Um, All right. First off, um, so Superman and Lois will be the title of the Superman show for the CW. Pretty cool. I saw a um, <clears throat> promo image or something that went yeah. out for it, yep. which got me excited. Yeah, and it, start, and it starts in January of 2021. So um, that's nice to know that they're uh, giving it some time out of the COVID stuff, which says to me they've probably filmed a good chunk of it. Um, but, um, the, uh, I thought it was, I thought what was interesting is because it starts in January, that's probably going to mean it's going to get a short season, like a 13 episode or whatever. And then they'll see what happens with it. Because a lot of times they'll do that with new shows. Like, is the show going to survive? And then, um, yeah. So I want to say that they did that with the flash season one, right? Or am I, something else? not the flash flash, um, flash debuted as a character on arrow season yeah. two and then the following year they started flash and it ran with arrow because they were the only super uh okay they did the they did the short season with uh legends of tomorrow legends of tomorrow okay that and, must have been 
and Legends of Tomorrow I think has. I did it with one of those shows. Yeah, and Legends of Tomorrow has remained the short season show, um, which is kind of cool um, because of the way it's interlaced with how they handled the crossovers and that kind of thing. So. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of short season shows on the CW and superhero stuff, Swamp Thing season one from the DC Universe is going to be coming to the CW in the fall. Okay, so they're just going to air it on the they're CW? Just gonna, they're just going to air it, which I thought was kind of cool. And in a world where we want content, and they're just like, well, we have this one season show. Like, <laughs> you know, like, why not? Um, I mean, that's good Good news. Um, I only watched the pilot of Swamp Thing, so I haven't seen the rest of it. I've heard really good things, and what I saw was actually really good. Um but I think uh, if it's on the CW and it airs and if it's popular enough, maybe they could pick up season two. We never know. Yeah. Um, all right. So moving on to Mission Impossible. Um, Mission Impossible, the uh, seven and eight. So when Mission Impossible six left uh, was in theaters and they announced the next Mission Impossible films, um, they announced it as two titles. Um, every now and then we run into a two title series that happens and it gets announced together um the perfect examples of this would be kill bill one and two where it was one movie they cut it in half and uh just released them in theaters within three months of each other um the matrix trilogy um not the matrix trilogy but the sequels uh they filmed together and then released them separately um the lord of the rings movies filmed together and then separated and released separately um, so they're did, kind of, uh, did all the all the Lord of the Rings ones did? Uh, the Lord, I don't know about the Hobbit, but the Lord of the Rings, uh, those three, uh, Fellowship, Two Towers, and Return of the King, they all got shot back to back in one oh, in one big shooting, and then yeah. they cut them in half. They cut them where they needed to cut them and release them six in consecutive years. I never knew that. I'm pretty like I want to say like I'm pretty sure the Hobbit was done that way. I didn't know the Lord of the Rings would have been because. You know, I'm surprised the studios didn't know if Fellowship was going to be a hit or not. So that's kind of what... That's crazy. That's awesome, though. Yeah. Um, so I'm, my guess is is that that's how they're handling um, the Mission Impossible movies, is it's going to be one giant story, and they're going to split it in half. There was an interview with uh, Christopher, director Christopher McQuarrie about, um, no, from The Hollywood Reporter about this, and he talked about how one of his reasons for wanting to do a bigger movie like this is because it would allow him to have more character development throughout the story. Um, and, you know, Tom Cruise, uh, Tom Cruise, Bing Rames, um, those two specifically, um, and then now Simon Pegg, I guess, could be added to that list. But Tom Cruise and Bing Rames have been there from the beginning and have been throughout all the movies. And, um, and then Simon Pegg kind of added in, so he's now kind of part of it. Um, but you've had time to grow with these characters. And if you're going to introduce any other characters and want to tell an emotional story on top of the espionage stuff going on, um, that's kind of a cool uh, way of putting it. Um, the article was a kind of a nice read. Um, a lot of it I already knew, but it was kind of a nice read to just hear him, hear Christopher McQuarrie talk about, um, plans for it. So my guess is they're just trying to make a nice big story that they want to cut in half. So I don't know what the release schedule is going to be, but, um... Yeah, I'm just excited because after Mission Impossible Fallout, I'm like, yeah, give me more because this is awesome. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay. Uh, I got some exciting news for you. Okay. All right. 
New Mutants has once again been given a release date. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, I laugh at that, and I know you laugh at that, and we all want to see New Mutants, but here's the thing. <laughs> they want to release it. The new release date is August 28th of 2020. We are at a point, again, it, I... <laughs> when was it originally going to come out? Um, I, dude, you want me to pull that back up? It's been... No, it's fine. <laughs> I just didn't know if you knew what, what month. Years ago. Um, I think it was always, I think the original month was supposed to be October because the movie is technically horror film looking. Okay. Um, but, uh, then it got moved to like a September, then it got moved to an August, and I got like, it's been moved like four or five times. Oh, I, I'm sorry, my bad. I'm just not like the most recent. Uh, release date. I don't. This one. I don't remember what. I think. I think the most <laughs> recent. No, the most release recent release date was supposed to be back in like, uh, um, right before COVID hit. Like March or something like it that. It was right before COVID hit, okay. and they had to shut everything down. And then they're like, um, we're gonna push this back again. And we all kind of laughed, like, of course you are. So yeah, yeah. That's that's crazy. <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel like I've been to a movie theater and seen. A new mutants poster on the wall, <laughs> and it just makes me wonder, like, about these like new mutants like posters or stand-ups they keep sending out. Like, what's going? What's happening to those? <laughs> you want one? Wrong release dates and stuff. Are you, are you saying you want one? Oh yeah, of course. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want it. I want them all with like each individual release date, and I can just line my walls with them. <laughs> well, I had friends. I had friends that worked at movie theaters, and I got a hand. I got some free posters out of it just because I was like, "Ooh, can I? Can you get that for me?" Kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, not some of the bigger ones that I wanted, like because I was like, "Can you grab one of the Star Wars things?" But I got some. I got some cool like banners and stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, like I uh, those New Mutants. Uh, we'll see that movie sometime. Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, at this point, it's going to be going going down as a fabled myth. Yeah, it's, it's going to go the way of the original Fantastic Four movie where it's just going to kind of never get released and then sold as, like, a bootleg DVD at comic conventions and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so now we have to talk about... I got one more news story, and this... I don't... It's not controversial, but it's got my brain, like, excited and frustrated all at the same time. Um... So, we talked last week about Boba Fett joining the cast of The Mandalorian Season 2. Um, and I expressed my opinions, and I like the idea, and I don't like the idea, and I'm just along for the ride, and it, I think it's going to be awesome. I really do. I just I just don't want him to overshadow things. Um, we talked a while back about uh, Ashley, um, sorry, Ahsoka Tano uh, joining the cast of Mandalorian Season 2, and it's going to be played by Rosario Dawson. Um, and I express my opinions where I just don't understand why it can't be Ashley, and I understand that there's an issue of... Um, and it's more than more likely than anything that they wanted a screen actress to play the character because Ashley just does the voice uh, for the animated stuff. Um, even though that bums me out, this story got my attention going, well, again, this brings me back to why can't we have Ashley? In Star Wars The Clone Wars, you get introduced to a Mandalorian by the name of Bo-Katan. Um, she is the sister to Duchess Satine of Mandalore. Uh, Bo-Katan is voiced by Katie Sackhoff um, from Battlestar Galactica fame. Katie Sackhoff will be reprising her role as Bo-Katan in The Mandalorian Season 2. <laughs> nice. Okay. I did see the story. Um, I didn't realize that Katie Sackhoff uh, 
did the uh, character's voice, though, yes. before, so that's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, it is awesome, and this brings me back to my point like I made before. I think it's awesome, and I'm really glad Katie Sackhoff's doing it, but it makes me look back at Ahsoka going, you're taking an animated character and using the voice actress to play the character. <laughs> Bizarrely, Katie Sackhoff looks like Bo-Katan, but one of the reasons is because they motion-captured the faces. So those are their faces, for real. So yeah, they might be alien, but their facial expressions all reflect back to them as a person. So when you see Ahsoka make a facial expression, that's Ashley making that facial expression. When you see Bo-Katan do it, it's Katie Sackhoff doing it. So if you're going to use the actress who voiced the character and put her on screen and make her be the character, why can't we do that with Ashley and Ahsoka? Yeah. I'm, it's just... <laughs> I mean, no, no arguments. Like, it's got me completely baffled, and I'm like, why? Um, I'm really, like, look, having Boba Fett in it, he's probably going to be all mangled from the Sarlacc pit and can't really do much anyway. He's probably going to be in a wheelchair, and we'll just go, there's Boba Fett. He was cool. Um... <laughs> Um, and then you'll have Katie Sackhoff returning as Bo-Katan, and that is, like, the idea... So, when you get to the end of The Mandalorian, spoiler, and see the Darksaber, I was just so excited to see the Darksaber. I never thought about the correlation with Ahsoka and Bo-Katan and Sabine from Rebels. So I'm waiting for the announcement that Sabine uh, from Rebels is going to be in this as well, because she was the Mandalorian that um, had... The the dark saber at the end, like she, like that's it was in her possession when Rebels ended. So the last place we saw it before Mandalorian was in Sabine's hands. So my thought was, I never thought about the consequences of seeing those characters live action, and now I'm like wanting to go back and rewatch everything Mandalorian um, from the Rebels episodes to because the Rebels episodes were just it was it's just as big. So the Rebels episodes, the Clone Wars episodes, and like. What else could we, could we end up seeing? Um, yeah. So it's got my brain, like, I've been, like, on a complete Star Wars kick lately, and it's been awesome. So, yeah. Or, or, or maybe Maz Kanata just found the Darksaber. <laughs> With no explanation further than that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Are you just reacting? No comment. <laughs> what? Say that again? Oh, I just said... What's that? Say that again? I said, I said, are you just reacting with no comment, or... Little of both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I keep going, though. Um, what was I going to say? Um, yeah, so that's it for news. I just wanted to bring that up, so... Nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's uh, crazy. Super fast. We went through the news really fast, so right now this is shaping up to be the shortest episode we've ever done. Um, <laughs> um, we need to talk about uh, movies, and um, this is an interesting list of uh, films to go through. So, um, let's. Uh, you ready to talk the list tonight? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, all right, man. Uh, so Ryan, we're gonna talk the list, so you know what I, you know, what we're doing. I'll roll the thing. For the top five. All right, man. So this was my list. So let me do a kind of an explanation. Um, I was thinking about this is a list. Of, uh, it's kind of hard to call it film education, um, 
or movies for educational purposes because I'm not recommending you watch a movie for educational purposes and I'm not recommending like, um, hey, go watch this movie because you're going to learn a lot because um, <laughs> that's that's totally how you're going to get people to watch movies. No, I was thinking about like if I, if I was <laughs> if I was teaching a film class, what are the five movies I would pick to show in my class? Um, and then my honorable mentions are there for um, if I have time to show you um, these are my two movies that I would add in if I could. Um, so if I was teaching a film class, these are the five movies. If Peter was teaching his film class, these are his. Um, and you don't have, and we've, and I'll tell you this, I've talked about some of these movies on this list ad nauseum and everyone knows I'm a fan of certain things that I'm going to bring up. So I'm not going to go into like reviews, but one of the things I wanted to say was why don't we talk about why we chose those for this reason? Um, just because there's like, you know, I guarantee I have a feeling you and I are going to match on at least one title, um, and one probably possibly one title only. But why we picked these titles for the for the idea of teaching someone movies and that kind of thing? Because I go through, I have a lot of conversations with people where I'll hear, "Oh, I've never seen that movie," and you're like, "Dude, you need to see this movie," and here's why. And you guys have the and people have these conversations all the time. And I feel like sometimes when I talk to people that I'm like, wow, I'm kind of having like this educational film conversation with. Um, and uh, I had a I have a friend of mine who I realized in conversation with her that she hadn't seen lots and lots of movies. And yeah. I ended up um, she ended up asking me once for a long list of movies. She goes, write down every movie I need to see. Just write down every movie I need to see. And give me a list so I can at least have some place to start. Well, I have a I have a very large film collection uh, because I collected DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff, and I still do to a point. Like it's the ones I really, really want that I pick up. Yeah. Uh, so I have this large film collection. So what I did was I went through my collection and I kind of categorized it: sci-fi, horror, comedy, you know. And I did like this giant these giant lists for her, and then I gave her the list and said, "Here you go." <laughs> These are just just off of my collection, and then as conversations progressed, I was like, "Oh, you need to watch that. Oh, you need to watch that." Um, so it just it made me realize that I was kind of doing like a interesting film education with her, or just on my own. So I was thinking about that, and that's what drove the idea for this list. So, um, nice. So uh, this was my pick for the week. So your turn. Go ahead, man. I do not have any honorable mentions this week. I, there are some things that I wanted to pick, but um, I felt that it would detract from my lesson plan, <laughs> which I can get into later. But Oh, no, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. No I, I didn't know how you were going to take it, and I didn't know what you yeah. were going to do. Um, I thought about not doing honorable mentions, and then I saw two movies on my shelf right before the show started that I was like, oh, there we go. If I have time, these are the movies I would show. Um the first movie uh, for my honorable mention, and I'm not again. I've talked about some of these movies. I've talked about a lot, so I'm not going to go too deep into them. But the first movie on my honorable mention, and this is if I have time to show it, is Ready Player One. Um, oh, okay. The reason is is because if you look at Ready Player One as a movie, um, from a filmmaking standpoint, Spielberg had to almost do four separate films and interlace them with each other to create um, the story that you got. Um, you have, and when I say that, you have the story of uh, Parzival in uh, the Oasis, and it's the story of everything that happens in the Oasis. 
you have the story of Parzival outside the Oasis and everything and all the interlay stuff with um, people rebelling against the company that's you know trying to take over the Oasis and everything. Then you have um, you have to have the love story part of it, and you have the tech um, the tech giant who's you get to see his you almost get to see a documentary of his life as he builds the Oasis and. Um, the and uh, so you get to see all this like almost like a Steve Jobs story. So it was almost like yeah. he had to create four movies separately and then put them all together so they worked with each other to create the story. Um, and it was an issue of how how to craft a story when you have to put stuff out of sequence and all that. It just that's why I that's why I would show that if I had time. And it's also a really good movie for adaptation from page to screen because the novel is very different. Uh, it's it's different. Ju it's just enough different from the film that uh, it makes the novel very unique on its own. So. Okay. Nice. I actually didn't even think about doing a adaptation, but yeah, that's a good call. Yeah. Um, good stuff. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Um. So my next one for my next honorable mention is The Dark Knight. Um. This comes down to adaptation of page to screen, but it's also. In a world where comic books are so um, important right now in terms of film, it it's a it shows you truly how well uh, these translate when taken to the utmost level of seriousness. Um, and you could look that at any movie you want, and the and this is a perfect example of not just comic books. Because you take Batman out of the equation, if you take Batman out or just put Batman in a police uniform, the movie plays the same. Um, it's it's really just a crime story and the clown's the villain. So uh -huh. when you when you look at it that way, and the way I look at it is, is this is a aside from adaptation of page to screen, this is a movie that just takes the story seriously on all levels. And even if it wasn't a superhero movie, it's just a great crime drama because they took it seriously straight through. Um, and it's a beautiful film to look at in terms of cinematography. So that's, if I had time, that's a movie I would show. So Awesome. Yeah, yeah I never, um, I don't know if I've ever, I feel like maybe I've heard of the uh, idea that like you take Batman out of a costume and put him in a police uniform and it's still the same movie. But that's a cool, that's just a cool concept to think about because it shows that with superhero movies, like, even though they're superheroes, you still have to have the story and everything within the story has to be in place for it to work. You can't, like, rely on superhero tropes to save you, uh, so to speak, so. Yeah. All right, man. <laughs> um, well, you get first pick. Yeah, First absolutely. actual so, pick, so. Yep. Um, so I don't know if uh, I might have approached the list slightly different than you, because for some reason I was thinking of it as if you were teaching a class on how to make film, which oh. movies you would uh, supply as homework. But at the same time, I think my list could still work. But I did. I think it's just because I'm like I always like kind of sit on more of the creative side of things that I just kind of went with that approach. Like well, what's going to make people look at making films a different way and maybe um, sort of like open their mind to different ideas and stuff. So but, uh, before you before you tell me your pick, just to piggyback off what you said, my idea for this list was very in the idea of, yes, making film, okay, making movies. But at the same time, 
um, one of my the one of the first film classes I ever took, which I absolutely loved. It was a uh, film as art class, and the whole point of it was we watched a movie, we discussed it in class, and then I had to write a review on the movie. And then cool. we'd come to I would come to class. I turn in my paper. We watch the next movie. We discuss it, and then I write a review. So and by the end of the semester, you were technically an amateur film critic. Um, but it was a really fun class to take. And then there was homework where like he'd assign the teacher would assign a homework and go go see any movie you want in the theater. Write a review. Bring it back in Monday morning. You know, and that'd be like that'd be like a weekend homework, and you'd be like, "Cool, what's in the theater?" And you're just like, hmm, "I guess I'll go see House of Dead." <laughs> you know, because you're just like, "That's the only thing playing this weekend." Um, so, in the realm of making a movie, and I'll talk about that when I get into some of my picks. My honorable mentions again; those were if I have time to show them in a semester. Otherwise, these are the five movies I'd want to focus on. Um, so, yeah, go ahead, man. Yeah. Um, oh, there's one more thing I did want to say, like kind of a small disclaimer is like, I don't know if I'm the most well-versed person in film. So I think some of the examples I give aren't necessarily the first film to do like what I, what I'm kind of putting them on the list for, but they're kind of the ones that I know the best and the ones that within my knowledge of film kind of accomplish the uh, goals that I have for them the best. Um, and with that being said, like a lot of these movies I've talked a lot about a lot, but uh, for my first pick, um, I guess I was kind of thinking of if you have a class of people who are wanting to do film, it kind of goes without saying that they've all known a very, they've all known like a very formulaic form of movies where kind of like the cinematography and the story and the lighting and everything kind of follows a bunch of rules. And I was trying to think of like, what's my favorite movie that doesn't follow a lot of rules? And I oh, chose right uh, Kill Bill for my first pick. So we've talked about this one a lot, but this one, um, especially when I saw it, when I was like, I want to say junior or senior year of high school, it was one of those movies that kind of opened my eyes to the idea that like, okay, a film doesn't need to look the same all the way through. You can play with different, with different, um, like different, uh, what, oh, filters is what I was looking for. You can do different filters and switch to black and white and color, and you can even have an animated sequence in, in the movie, because really, like what you were talking about earlier, this film is a, or film is technically a piece of art, and you can really do whatever you want. <clears throat> And there is no rules. And I know there's other movies that have done this. You know, you have, like, Clockwork Orange. You have, like, a lot of hybrid films that kind of do similar things. But this is kind of the one that I know and love the best that kind of accomplishes that sort of, uh, I guess, uh, juxtaposition of, like, many different influences at the same time. And in a way, it's, like, one of the more obnoxious ones. And I mean that in a good way, but there's kind of, like, you can't, watch Kill Bill and not acknowledge that, like, the way it's filmed is a little bizarre, and I love that about it, so. Well, not only that, it's, Kill Bill, like, it took me, like, a couple times to realize, so, it took me a couple times on the list to realize the first, uh, assassination you see is actually the second assassination, and then you go back and watch the first assassination. (sighs) 
Um, and I know Tarantino does that all the time where he shows you the end of the movie first and then you go back and watch like that. That's yeah. kind of a thing that he used to do. Um, but it took me a couple watches to realize that, oh, that's actually what I'm watching is the second assassination first. And then I'm watching the entire story of the first. Um, and then the idea of going into and showing all the live action stuff and then using a cartoon as a flashback, um, that just was... I thought that was really cool to do. Um, yeah, it's just it was a complete departure of like things that we yeah. didn't know. And I remember, I remember you and me watching the movie. I remember the movie got it was released on DVD finally and got it home. And I'm like, dude, you need to watch this because you didn't go to the theater. We watched right. the movie, and I remember you going, "How do you come up with something like this?" That was I remember that being the first thing you said <laughs> right. when the movie ended. Um, like, how did he put all that together? Because it's a it's a martial arts film that's a spaghetti western, like that's an anime that's you yeah. know it's yeah. I, I I found it truly inspiring um, when I first saw it, and like like I said, like the movie had just came out, and I was in high school and hadn't seen anything like it at the time, but it just really did open my eyes to um, just kind of like film and art in general and that there really is no rules, you know, as long as it's executed well, so. And it's got my favorite, it's got one of my all-time favorite camera tricks in that movie. Um, it's a two, it's like, I think it's a two-minute tracking shot uh, where he, it's when they get to the, um, it's the House of Blue Leaves, is that what it is? Is that the Japanese bar? I want to say it's the House of Blue Leaves. Yeah, and I'm not sure off the top. The of my camera head. picks her up at the bar, and she walks through the crowd at the bar and the band playing, and then it follows her like down hallways and around corners, and then picks up under the like it doesn't break tracking shot, and the way it handles going through doors and over walls, I can't figure out how they did it. Um, and it's just it's one of my favorite camera shots of all film. So. <laughs> Um, Absolutely. I remember seeing it the very, the very first time I saw the movie, I caught it and I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, speaking of camera shots, that's actually a really good segue into, uh, my next movie. And it's a movie, um, I've talked about before. It's called out of sight. Um, it's one of my all time favorite films. Um, this movie I chose specifically for the cinematography of the film. Um, there are some gorgeous and when people talk about cinematography, Think cinematography is half of the word is cinema and half of the word is photography. So moving picture, right? But you're still talking about the picture aspect. And on a photography level, there are some gorgeous, just gorgeous shots in this movie. And it's such a simple movie that you don't expect this type of camera work. And uh, Steven Soderbergh did this am some amazing camera tricks where you think it's a glitch, to be completely honest. The first time you see it, you think something happened, like as if you're watching it on TV, maybe your cable like shifted and it glitched. But it's actually part of the film. He's got these things in the movie where the camera pauses for like the briefest second and then resumes play. And then you'll be playing around with this another scene and it'll pause for just a second and it'll resume play. What's happening is... And I didn't realize this until later when I watched uh, the making of bonus features and all that stuff. Is everything that happens where there's a pause in the break is actually a flashback sequence. And okay. it's happening throughout the film to all these different stories until the film has caught up with itself. And this one specific event happens. And then there's no more of those pauses until the end credits. Um, and it was his way of playing with 
the idea of different timelines until they all caught up with themselves to tell the story so it could all unfold at the end. Um, it, it was just a beautiful way of doing it. Um, and that's why I wanted to just point it out just on a cinematography level. It's just, it was just amazing to look at how that works. And I actually really ended up studying the movie in terms of shot for shot kind of stuff after I watched that bonus feature. So nice. Yeah. I, um, I haven't seen this movie, so I don't have a lot to say on it, but that actually sounds really interesting. And Sounds like the sort of thing that you won't notice until you've watched it like five or six times or something like that, which is Un- always unfortunately, really unfortunately, yes. Um, <laughs> so, okay. But some of that stuff I think is cool. I like when stuff isn't that obvious and you have to really pick things apart to really catch certain meanings and things. Yeah. All right, man. Um, you're up. Okay, so on to my next one. So. The other thing I forgot to mention about Kill Bill is um, a lot of the fight scenes are kind of ridiculous. Like, they're kind of really unrealistic and a really cool, like, artsy, like, badass sort of way. And uh, the next movie I wanted to show my class was actually The Matrix. And the reason, besides, like, this movie being, like, just an awesome story as far as, like, social commentary and as far as, like, a really cool narrative and how it fits in with, like, biblical prophecies and like there's all these like underlying meaning meanings to the movie like i think this movie is brilliant but i think this movie i actually uh i actually own the book matrix and philosophy okay so yeah (laughs) yeah there's a lot to it yes you can you can write a full book about it yep um but uh besides all that like this movie also shows that like there's these fight scenes in the matrix and there's there's just like a lot of parts that breaks the laws of physics and similar to uh not exactly the same but similar to certain like parts of kill bill where like a fight scene will break the laws of physics this is a movie that does something similar but has an explanation for it behind it and i kind of just like to show both sides of that coin where like both of these movies are doing ridiculous things and one of it's doing it without explanation but it's awesome because of the artistry of it And another one's doing it with, like, concrete explanations to how all this is possible. So I kind of wanted to show both sides of the the coin where you can, there kind of isn't any rules, but you can also create your own rules and make your own explanations for how stuff within your world can work. And I just thought The Matrix was kind of a really cool, concrete sort of world-building movie to show, if that makes sense. It is, and it's also um, on a on a camera work perspective, it's also where we got bullet time from, which is the camera, yeah, absolutely. which is that camera trick where it's like showing the speed of things. It's basically taking something really fast and slowing it down so you can see everything, which again, it took, and unfortunately I feel like I should have caught it originally and I knew, and I knew it, but I remember, I remember catching it at the end of the movie going, Oh wait, they're moving faster than we can see, and that's why they're moving so slow. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it made me have to see the movie like 12 more times so I could really watch <laughs> and pay, you know. And I caught it the first time through. I just caught it later in the movie like, oh, that makes sense. Now. You know, so. It's it's kind of cool because it's one of those things, the first time you see it, you see bullet time and you understand it, but you don't realize what you're understanding. And then it's later on, you're like, oh, crap, that's what that is. And it's like 
it is really cool that way. So yeah, and it's and you really understand bullet time when they're shooting guns. It's when they're doing the fist fights or the martial arts that that's where you take a step back and have to realize what you're, you know, it's like, oh, and that's just first couple viewings. Um, yeah. After that, it's like on TNT or like HBO or something. And you're just like, dude, I can't, you know, and you have to watch the bank heist scene or the, you know, so. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And like, like I can say this is kind of completely unrelated to the uh, film class discussion, but I love bullet time. Like, <laughs> I, I like slow motion scenes and action movies and stuff. I know I see a lot of uh, it get I get I see it get a lot of flack online, but honestly, like I think it's made some really exciting, cool things from like the movies that have been influenced by the Matrix since then. So right. Um. Yeah. Okay. Is it mine? Yeah. Yeah. You can go. Okay. Ahead. So. Um. So my next one is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, okay. I kind of struggled with this a little bit because I was thinking about the Spielberg aspect. I'm like, crap, I could end up with too many Spielberg movies on my list because I thought about, I th and I'm going to tell you these movies are not on my list, but I thought about putting Jaws on here because Jaws is like the first, um, is the first blockbuster quote unquote. And then I thought about putting, um, Jurassic Park on here because of the CG aspect. That was like the first movie where everyone went, Oh, wait a minute. And then it changed the CG landscape. Um, but I didn't want to do that, and I was looking at Spielberg films in terms of what's a Spielberg film that really like stands out to me in terms of teaching something. And Raiders of the Lost Ark, aside from the historical aspect of it and like you know the the archaeology and stuff, this is a movie that was intended to be a B film. They went in knowing that they're making a B movie, and they turned in an A film. Um, and Raiders shows an archetype of a character that you learn every single thing you need to know about the character within the first five minutes of the film, and then you are just on the adventure with him till the end of the credits. Um, <laughs> the only other part in the movie that I feel like you're going, oh, wait, that's cool, is when he goes and talks to Marion for the first time. Um, the scene in the cave, everyone loves, but you totally know who you're dealing with. And then you get to the college, and you totally know who you're dealing with. And this is the, you know, you're just like, this is the good guy. I like him. And then when you get to the scene, and this is something that, so, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was the first of the Indiana Jones films I watched. Um, Raiders came later, and then I eventually watched Last Crusade. And Last Crusade was my favorite for a long time. And I really think that I was wrong on that, and Raiders is actually my favorite of the Indiana Jones films. Um, okay. And I remember it was on TV, this was like months ago, probably like middle of last summer, it was on TV. And I'm like, oh, Raiders is on, cool. And I caught it like, eh, right when the boulder was chasing him out of the cave. So I didn't see the whole opening sequence. And I probably watched maybe like another hour of it and had to go do something, so I had to turn off the TV. But I'm watching... And the scene where he goes and he gets Marion from the place in that uh, uh, place in Nepal, and uh, he goes and meets her at that bar, like her restaurant, her bar or whatever in China. That scene where he's talking to her, you know nothing about these two characters, but the history that's in that dialogue was so profound, and it's like dialogue I've always listened to, I've always known about, but I've never focused on it the way I did this time around. 
and it really made me look at the movie in a completely new light and I started like really like paying attention to things and they like I said they went in with a B movie intentions and came out with an A-list film in my opinion anyway but it's all about this one character and the archetype they created they went in wanting to make a James Bond movie and they gave us something completely different and something in my opinion almost way cooler um, so, and aside from, like, really cool camera work and cinematography and all that stuff, this is, I just think this movie is a masterpiece, um, and it's a movie that I'd have to show people in terms of, um, in terms of all of everything I just said, so. Absolutely, yeah, I mean, I, I really don't know if I could say anything more than you haven't, but, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. awesome. <laughs> all right, um, okay, and I don't, man, I don't know which one to do next, so, um, go ahead. Okay, right. So um, on my list, I've had Kill Bill and The Matrix, which are both movies that uh, have done some really cool experimentation from very different approaches, but they're also huge budgets. And what does that mean to you? You know, this kid sitting in the class who wants to make their own movies. And that's why I wanted to strip it back a little bit for my next pick. And I wanted to go with the movie Halloween. Um, and that's the original <laughs> right John Carpenter Halloween. And the reason I wanted to pick this one is because when you watch Halloween, I think there's, like, besides, like, being left with, like, oh, my God, this movie's amazing, like, it's so, there's such, like, a bare-bones feel to it as, at, you know, when you're watching it. You realize, like, the budget wasn't super massive for this movie, and um, so much of it's kind of, like, I don't want to say simple, but it, it has like that sort of bare bones approach while still being the scariest movie you've ever seen. And there's, you know, there's plenty of iconic parts of the movie. One of my favorite parts is the, uh, at the beginning of the movie, there's kind of that like first person esque sequence with, uh, Michael Myers going through that house, like killing a bunch of people. But another thing to be, to remember about this movie is John Carpenter didn't just direct it, he also did the music for it. And I think that's like such a um, kind of a cool thing to leave with people where John Carpenter isn't a musical composer. Like, he isn't a classically trained musician, but he made this thing and he just decided to make the music himself. And it gives it even more of a stripped down, bare bones effect, but it also is just super effective. Like, the movie Halloween, because of its score, is so memorable because of how he uses that simple piano theme and uh kind of like these weird repeating beeps and stuff um at certain parts of the movie to kind of deliver the scares and you can just picture him recording that stuff on like a cheap keyboard and like <laughs> i don't know i think it's really inspiring kind of not even just the music approach but just showing like even if you don't have everything you think you need you can still go out and make something and you you can make it happen, like, even if you have limited supplies, budget, uh, whatever. So I guess that was kind of my main message with showing my class this movie. Yes, and yours is a perfect segue into what I was about to say, too. Um, oh, cool. Did, did you want to have anything to add on? Because I agree with everything you said. Um, and uh, it's it's a simple movie um, in terms of uh, what they were what they were trying to do with it and putting together that piano piece like that was it's a stroke of brilliance of hey look how simple of a piano piece we can put together because it's going to just uh, you know curdle your nerves for the rest of the um Absolutely. rest of the film. Yeah. um i can say like it 
was kind of there was a bit of a toss up with me between Halloween and uh, Jaws actually because both use music in a very unique way to deliver a certain emotion. But I chose Halloween because of the even more uh, stripped down approach uh, compared to Jaws. Like it's just a little bit less as far as uh, big budget like special effects and stuff like that. So. So, and piggybacking off of that, my next, my pick, my next pick is going to, um, is all about sim- simple. Um, it's all about low budget. It's all about the music. It's, it's everything you just said. Um, and that's the movie Reservoir Dogs. Oh, nice. Um, first off, since you mentioned the music, the soundtrack of this movie is phenomenal. And I can't listen to many songs, um, out in the world, like, um, uh, stuck in the middle with you, for example. Every time that song comes on, I hear, res- I see Reservoir Dogs in my mind. There's, you can't escape it. Everyone who's seen that movie knows why I say that, and they and they are in the same boat I am. But the thing about Reservoir Dogs, this is, um, this is incredible. This is an incredibly simple movie to make because ultimately you have like two sets, and that's it. Um, you have like. You have like the scene at the beginning where they're in the diner talking, and then almost the rest of the movie is at the warehouse, and it's all dialogue, and there's no, it's all dialogue, and you're trying to piece together what's happening from the stories the characters are telling you. Um, so you get a little bit of glimpses of like what happened to the jewelry store or what happened with uh, Tim Roth at his apartment, but other than that, it's primarily at the warehouse, and that creates, that allows a writer. Uh, like Tarantino to create a story in a space without throwing in special effects and without worrying about uh, makeup and all this other stuff. I mean, yeah, it got really bloody later, so you have to worry about makeup. But dealing with um, dealing with a story like that, knowing you're kind of going to get it backwards in a way because you have to hear about all these stories as it goes. Um, it's such a simple movie, and it couldn't have cost too much to make, except for like cast salaries, probably more than anything, because of how simple it was to put together. Um, so yeah, and the the lesson on this one is how what you can do with limited space, um, and look at the story you're telling. So absolutely, that's um, I agree with everything you said there. I think um, kind of piggy because I don't know a lot else to add to it, but piggybacking off of the part two is um just the way that i mean this goes for all of tarantino's movies at least all the ones that i've seen but just the way he uses kind of found music as opposed to composing original music for this movie like the way he uses just songs he's listened to and stuff and like you use the stuck in the middle example like it's a really interesting way to show that you can you you don't even have to make this stuff yourself like you can find music and as long as you get the rights to it it's fair game to use in your own movie and you can do that in very very interesting ways so yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) um this is uh your next pick man okay so it's kind of funny this uh train because we were kind of thinking on very similar uh wavelengths because the next movie i was going to uh talk about is clerks um and and this is it's kind of funny, I, I managed to shoehorn Jay and Silent Bob into this one too, but the real reason I picked Clerks is you go from Halloween and then you go to Clerks, and this one is even more stripped down, and this is a guy who 
you know, Kevin Smith, who couldn't afford color film, so he used black and white film, and he didn't have sets, so he used, like, his places of employment as the set, and he didn't have actors, so he used his friends to play the parts, and it kind of, like, Clerks is, like, to me, the ultimate example of, like, use what you have to create art, and if it's good enough, it can actually leave a mark on pop culture, and I think there's, like, I know there's other movies that have done it. There's a couple movies that even inspired Kevin Smith to take this approach, but I just think for me it's like the best example I could think of of just like, yeah, I have like such limited supplies, but I'm still going to get my story. I'm still going to get my movie out there. So I think that's really inspiring. Yeah. Um, so I, Clerks, I really, um, I really uh, thought about putting it on my list too. So, um, and for exactly what you said, and it's it comes down to creativity. Look at the, um, look at the space you have. How do you tell a story? Um, the uh, one of the one of the plays I directed, Peter. You actually went and saw. Um, and when I put that together, when I wrote it and put it together, I thought to myself, how much stuff do I have to have on stage, and how much stuff can I do off stage, and just let the theater, the mind, deal with the rest of it, and fill in the yeah. gaps. Um, and that's kind of an approach I took to it because it was a single room and, you know, what can you do? So, Absolutely. Yeah. And Clerks is a perfect example of that because just about it all takes place in a store and you know, there's a little stuff outside, but for the most part, it is all the store. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Okay. So my next, so my next pick of the night, um, is one of my all time favorite movies. It's a movie that I literally watch as if it's on TV. If I, if it's on, I stop flipping channels and there's only like one other movie that makes me go, Oh wait, I should watch that instead. Um, but this movie is called uh, a few good men. Um, I don't, I'm pretty sure I've talked about it in the past. Uh, yeah, we've talked about it before. Um, This movie is amazing, but the reason I wanted to bring this movie up is because I'm a massive Aaron Sorkin fan, and he, um, this is a, this is a writer's script, um, because of how the dialogue is fast, the dialogue is thick, the dialogue is important, this is a court case movie, so everything that's said is, like, hyper-important, um, this is a movie that probably should have won Best Picture. I mean, it was nominated, but it probably should have won Best Picture. I'd have to go back and look to see what it lost to. Um, but the uh, but this is a this is a writer's movie where look at it from the um, conception of creating a story and telling it, um, not just in an outline storyboard. Oh, hey, this character goes here and does this. This character goes there and does that. But full dialogue written out. This is how it's got to be. And it's just astounding, and it's one of those things where um, I would point you to, you know, watch A Few Good Men, go watch Social Network, go watch Molly's Game, go watch all of the show Newsroom. The way Sorkin writes his dialogue is so, it's so, like, it's it's almost like, how do you write dialogue like him? I wish I could take an Aaron Sorkin, like, class to just learn how to write dialogue the way he does. Um, but, yeah, I don't know if you have anything else to say about it. I just, I chose this one specifically because of writing. So. No, I mean, it's it's a great movie, and it's a great example of the writing, too, because you just think of, like, how many iconic moments and lines happen in the movie. But also, like, it is a courtroom drama where 
it's not like there's a lot of action and stuff. You know, there's like one incident in the beginning and that kind of sets, you know, the rest of the movie in motion. But it's all about the court case and that like, I think because you have such good actors in the movie and such good writing, it really allows, um, I guess, just like a lot of really good iconic moments. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have a ton to add to it than what you said, but yeah, it's definitely an awesome movie. So, All right. Um, let's find out what your last pick is, man. Yes, my last one. I feel like we might match. I'm not really sure. And I kind of feel like this is a ridiculous one to pick, but I went with Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. <laughs> hey, guess what? We matched. <laughs> okay, awesome. This is the one that I was like, when I when I handed you the list and we separated last week, I was like, we're going to match on Star Wars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I almost didn't pick it, but it kind of, I think it kind of worked with the message I was trying to get across with uh, the other movies I picked. And I say that because this is a movie where it's so hard to know where to start, and we've talked a lot about it, but you think about the music in the movie and how the movie propelled special effects forward and how it popularized space operas for so long and the mark that it leaves on or that it left on our culture and all that. But I think like, to me, there's a story within a story here where George Lucas, and we've talked about this before too, I think, but on that, uh, is it the empire of dreams documentary um, yes. where it talks about George Lucas had a private screening for this movie with a bunch of his film director friends and uh he showed them a cut of star wars a new hope and he showed it to them without before the music was acted i don't know if the special effects were all complete yet or not that i don't know it's kind of this funny thing where almost everybody there was just like what is this like what are you doing like they're just left baffled because it was so different and they didn't think in a good way and it's kind of funny to see how it went on to make such a huge like mark on our culture and it kind of like to me just goes to show you like to believe in yourself and even when your friends don't believe in you and maybe the movie industry doesn't believe in you but you know in your heart that you have a good piece of art that you want to put out there you just have to believe yourself in yourself and go for it and stick to it and bring your art to the masses i guess so i don't that's kind of what i was thinking of when i picked this one it's it's a perfect example i don't have the quote on me and it's literally in another room i'd have to go find it um it's a quote that i pulled from lucas and essentially it talks about you have to ignore what everyone else thinks you have to you have to believe that you're right and everyone else is wrong and you have to be willing to go down with the ship if it sinks um, otherwise you'll never make the thing you want to make. Um, and that's, it, it's a George Lucas quote. Um, that's, I'm paraphrasing it because I can't remember it verbatim. Um, but it's one of, it's one of my favorite quotes of his. Um, but the thing about Star Wars is that everything you said for sure, but this is a movie that no one believed in. The only person who believed in it was George Lucas and then Alan Ladd from Fox. Um, and Alan Ladd from Fox thought the movie, if you watched, if you watched the Empire of Dreams documentary, he thought the movie was weird, but he believed in George Lucas and was like, this guy seems to know what he's doing. I'm going to give him a shot. Um, and they went in and made this movie and the time that the movie was made, it was such a pivotal point when this movie was made in terms of what was going on in the world and what was going on in filmmaking. And then you have, um, and then George Lucas comes out with this movie that breaks all rules in realms of they had to rewrite books of special effects 
because all the special effects in Star Wars had never been done before. So they had to rewrite all this stuff. They had to rewrite all the books on sound design because no one had ever done sound design like that before. Um, on the surface, when they were filming it, it looked like this weird space something like, what are we? What kind of story is this? No one really understood because they couldn't see that big picture. And what's cool about this movie is look at it on the technical side. Oh my gosh, this is how they did this for real. This is how they did this with space models, space models, uh, with how they did the models, how they moved the camera instead of the ships, um, how they, um, you know, cannibalized stuff to make the Death Star so they could do the Death Star trench run, how they had to do the sound design to do the lightsabers, Chewbacca's growl, like when you find out how many animal sounds that's combined together to create the Chewbacca noise, that's why no one can do like a proper... Um, uh, sound effect when they do that. But when you look at all that stuff together, look at all the filmmaking aspects of it, strip that away, and then look how easy it is to shoot some of those things. Um, the movie essentially was, I mean, it was a very simple movie. They had some desert scenes, they had a bar, and then they had a sound stage where they shot interior Death Star stuff. And when you look at the pilot aspect, there was a lot of cockpit scenes, but those cockpits can't take up that much space. It really didn't look like it cost that much to like, and I know it did at the time, but it doesn't look like it was that much to put together. Um, it's simple when you look at the film as itself. Uh, on a writing aspect, it's a very simple story of a, you know, unlikely hero um, who's in a rescue of a princess, save the day and save the galaxy, technically. But take that aside and now look at it from a writing standpoint of how Lucas pulled from mythology to create a hero's journey. Um, he could have done that with Hercules or Zeus or all that stuff, and you could have seen like some kind of mythology thing, or you create your own mythology, and you tell a story with those themes, and you then propel that forward and make you as an audience think about it in a way, and you don't even realize you're thinking about it on the mythological sense of the hero's journey. The hero picking up the sword and then denying his call to the adventure and then picking up the sword again and actually taking the adventure and then, you know, rescuing the princess and then, you know, all that stuff. Like, that's mythology in the purest Joseph Campbell sense. Um, I feel like I should have prepared a better speech, but... Um, <laughs> no, <that's... laughs> no, absolutely. I think you had some good points in there, too, because you are talking about, like, a little bit about the cinematography and how it's... Um, some some parts, like, do seem kind of similar... Uh, Simple, but really when it comes down to it, it's like George Lucas, when he was making Star Wars, was hearkening back to the old um, Flash Gordon, like, serials that he grew up with. And uh, it's kind of just that sort of, like, more of a classic um, approach to, to cinema that, that influenced his cinematography in a lot of ways. And uh, same thing with the story, like, at the heart of it, like, even though there's a lot of really complicated special effects and characters and alien species and all this sort of stuff on the surface at the at its heart like star wars is like a uh, more of a simple like adventure story and it's a really good adventure story and it kind of shows like at the core of your story that you're trying to put out there you you do have to keep it simple for to an extent because that's what people are going to relate to and then once you have that core story structure then you can throw on all the bells and whistles you want, but you do need that sort of simple, relatable story and conflict that people can uh, get into there. So, yeah. All right, man. 
Um, <laughs> I don't know what else we like. We talk about Star Wars all the time, but this was more of Star <laughs> Wars. This was more of Star Wars on a filmmaking aspect um, that I wanted to discuss. Um, aside from blowing it up over the fact that I'm just a fan, because um, we weren't talking Tie Fighters and X Wings, we were talking like, hey, this is this is incredible like work that they did behind the scenes. Um, with that being said, uh, you should have you watched uh, Gallery yet on Disney Plus? No, I still haven't checked that out. There's gotta, there's two, there's two episodes. Um, the and I think I talked about this a little bit last week. The first episode and the second episode wasn't out when I talked about it before, but the first episode is all about directing the Mandalorian. It's talking to the directors. The second episode is called Legacy, and it's all about George's vision. Um, oh, nice. And it's it doesn't it 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 doesn't touch on the Mandalorian nearly the way I was expecting it to. It's mostly on George and Dave Filoni has this piece at the at um the end of the movie not the end of the movie at the end of the episode where he talks about how important of a film Episode One is and he literally like it's almost like he started talking and they were like don't turn off the camera like let him talk and it's the, it's the end of the episode and it's just phenomenal to listen to him and it almost like it's something i've always known but to hear dave talk about it kind of gave me chills so um, nice that's yeah. awesome yeah and dave filoni needs a live action movie that's all i'm gonna say he needs it give it to him give him a live action film um so yeah all right that brings us to the end um so peter what are we doing next week Okay, so next week we're going to do a list that I actually thought you were going to take with the list we just did. Um, it's a similar direction, but it's different. Um, I wanted to do, because last time you were talking about like when you tell somebody, like, oh, you need to see this movie, this is why I thought you were going this direction. But I want to do our top five underrated pieces of media. And I don't want to I don't want to stick with movies. I think sure. it would be fun to open it up, up to books and uh, novels and video game or graphic novels and video games and wherever you want to go with it. But I just, I've been thinking about this one for a while and I think it'd be fun to do, you know, what are some of your favorite things that don't seem to get a lot of attention from pop culture or people, you know, and stuff like that. And maybe you'll go into some really obscure stuff or maybe you'll just go into like some old movies that, you know, nobody ever talks about anymore. And I just think it'd be fun to talk about our un underrated pieces of media. So Cool. That's actually a really cool idea. Um, and once we get off the air, I have a list idea I need to actually run by you um, offline because okay. I want to see if you could actually do it. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so I don't mind giving you the heads up and telling you about this list ahead of time. So, um, yeah. All right, man. So that's it for this week, right? Yes. So underrated media next week. Um, yes. All right, so do us a favor. Check us out at our website, top5report.com. There you'll find links to all of our social media, Twitter and Facebook, along with a link to our email uh, where you can interact with the show at top5report at gmail.com. Um, please uh, check us out on Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. There you can subscribe to us. And if you do, you will not miss a single episode. You can also leave us a review, which we love the five stars, but we also understand criticism because it helps us get better. And it makes the words we say sound important. Uh, you can follow me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Drew3927. Peter? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at NinjaPierre, and that's where I will be spreading the word that the truth is there is no big toe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well... <laughs> All right, for the Top 5 Report, I'm Drew, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.